So hello and welcome back to this Small Animal Clinical Podcast Series brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jasani. Today it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Dr. Roseanne Jepson. Roseanne, you will remember, is a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine and a lecturer in internal medicine at the RVC's Queen Mother Hospital for Animals. So thanks very much, Roseanne, for agreeing to take part in yet another podcast. Um, So today, I'd like to discuss something which is a pretty big problem that affects many dogs and cats, um, and that is chronic kidney disease, or at times we'll refer to it as CKD. Um, This is obviously a pretty big topic, and so we're going to try and cover it in two separate podcasts. Today, in part one, we'll talk about some of the more theoretical information, um, some physiology, some pathology, that kind of thing. And then in part two, which we'll publish at a later date, we will focus more on the sort of clinical aspects of the management of those patients. So as always, I'd like to start with the basics, really, by asking if you could please remind us about the kind of basic anatomy uh, and functions of the kidneys, please. Sure, Shailen. Um, So the kidney um, is an organ that has many different um, important functions. Um, Obviously, we think of it mainly in terms of producing or getting rid of waste products, excreting things through the urine. Um, But it's also important from a homeostatic um, point of view in terms of regulating blood pressure, um, acid-base regulation, um, and also it's an important site for production of erythropoietin, which obviously we need um, for the bone marrow to produce red blood cells. So there are lots of different important um, uh, functions for the kidneys. Um, and then in terms of the anatomy of the kidney, well, it's, it's quite complex. We have an outer cortex um, and an inner medulla. Um, the kidney has very important blood supply. It, um, the blood supply stems straight from the aorta via the renal arteries. Um, what's the... What's in, is it... Is it 20% of cardiac output? Yeah, absolutely. It's about that, yeah. So it takes about 20% of cardiac output, and that just um, tells us what an important organ it is, basically. And the regulation of blood supply to the kidney is really important in terms of maintaining all those renal functions that we were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of the kind of little sort of microscopic bits of the kidney, um, what do we need to know about that in order to kind of have a... A decent enough understanding of kidney disease? Well, we need, we need to know about the nephron, and each kidney contains probably in excess of a million nephrons, um, and those are the functioning units of the kidney. So we have the glomerulus, which sits in the cortex, and then we have um, the tubular structures, which dive down into the medulla, um, to the loop of Henle, um, the proximal um, tubule, which is important for reabsorbing electrolytes, proteins, glucose, um, and then we have the distal convoluted tubule passing through to the collector ducts where urine is collected together before it enters the renal pelvis and exits. And um, presumably, or, or you tell me, but in terms of those different parts of the kidney, does which of those bits being affected impact on what occurs clinically or not so much? So I think we can really think about kidney disease affecting two separate areas, either the glomerulus um, or affecting um, the tubular structures. Um, And certainly um, we see specific diseases which affect those independently, but ultimately as we progress towards end-stage disease, often we'll find that there'll be a combination. So a patient that may start primarily with tubular disease ultimately may have some damage in their glomerulus and vice versa. Okay, cool. Um, and 
kind of following on from that, really, and you sort of touched on it um, already, but just to kind of recap and summarize. Um, so the first thing is kind of what happens as the function of the kidneys starts to deteriorate. But also, does it matter how quickly that occurs and also whether one or bo- uh, both kidneys is affected? I remember in, a, in, a, in our earlier podcast about PUPD, we, we laughed out loud about the 70% of nephrons um, conversation. But again, just... So, yeah, if you could recap what, are, you know, what happens as the, as the function of the kidney starts to fail... Does it matter how quickly and does it matter whether it's one or both kidneys? That would be great. Absolutely. So, again, it depends on the region of the kidney that's affected. So if we think to start with about primary glomerular disease, then in that situation, actually, the total number of nephrons that you have is essentially normal. Um, but what's happened is that the sieve um, function of the glomerulus has become impaired. So overall, that patient may not be azotemic, so they have the normal number of functioning nephrons, they just have a problem with the glomerular function. On the other hand, if we have patients that have started to lose their nephrons, so as we would expect to see in tubular interstitial disease, then those patients, as they lose those functioning nephrons and we reach that critical 75% point, then they're going to become azotemic. Now, that does impact in terms of whether it's one or both kidneys that are affected, um, and often it will be both kidneys that are affected um, typically, unless we're looking at, um, for example, renal neoplasia perhaps that's affecting one kidney initially such as a renal carcinoma for example um, and um, in terms of um, how quickly the damage occurs then yes that's going to impact in terms of whether we're thinking of a patient having an acute kidney injury or a chronic kidney injury and that is important for us to ascertain because ultimately um, the treatment and potentially the prognosis of those two patients could be very different okay cool and um Presumably what we're saying is as the function of the kidney starts to deteriorate, then essentially you've already described what the role of the kidney is. And I guess we're saying that those multiple mechanisms of the kidney to varying degrees at various stages will start to fail. Yeah. So you won't be, you'll no longer be excreting the waste products in inverted commas. Your blood pressure regulation will become dysfunctional and, and so erythropoietin production and so on. And I guess that sort of um, rapidity of onset how all of those things are affected will, will differ. So it's yeah. a relatively complicated picture, I guess, on that kind of level. Yeah. But ultimately, on a patient whole body level, then we know what the consequences are. Cool. So um, I guess one of the obvious questions then really is, if we look at the reasons why the kidneys may actually become dysfunctional, um, we, again, we've kind of touched on this already, and I think you know it's, it's worth just recapping it a little bit, but... From a kind of pathological point of view, what's going to be happening in the kidney? Um, And secondly, kind of what are the sort of causes of that pathology? So just in kind of general terms, what are the the causes of kidney injury and which parts of the kidney might they impact? And and you've already said that to an extent that doesn't have a huge amount of bearing on what we see clinically. But I guess Mm -hmm. we do associate certain types of kidney injury maybe with certain types, or if you don't think it's that important, then then just clarify that as well. 
Um, no, I mean, I do think it's important. I, th- I think um, ultimately for chronic kidney disease, so the sort of ageing changes that we see in tubular interstitial nephritis, um, one of the problems is we, that we don't know exactly what it is that predisposes one cat or dog to um, start developing kidney disease at a time point, um, whereas another cat or dog might not. But we know that there are some factors that can contribute to the progression of that disease and that can impact on that disease. So it might be that they have high blood pressure, which can affect the glomerulus. It might be that they um, become proteinuric, which we know can impact on um, tubular interstitial inflammation. Um, Then some way in that patient's past, there might have been other things that have influenced whether that patient develops kidney disease. So perhaps if they'd had recurrent urinary tract infections, if they'd um, had drugs in the past that might have um, been potentially damaging to their kidneys. So whilst when we make a diagnosis of chronic kidney disease, we're really looking at the global picture of that patient and their biochemical and urinalysis changes. Ultimately, it's very unlikely that we'll be able to say to the client, this is exactly why this has happened in your pet. We just know that it's happened and we have to try to deal with, with what's going on at that so point. So are we kind of saying, I suppose there's sort of three populations really, you'll correct me if I'm wrong about this, but we're sort of saying that there are patients who, for whatever reason, are going to get chronic kidney disease. There are patients who aren't going to get chronic kidney disease, but they have some kind of acute injury that then kicks off a process, and we'll come on to that in a bit more detail in a minute. And then there are those ones that are going to get chronic disease, but that could be exacerbated along the way by an acute injury. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it can all be part of a continuum, um, but it's really important that we do clinically try to differentiate, as I said, when we physically see these patients come into us, because the management's going to be very different. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, and one of the things that um, ah, we were just talking before we started, I think it's probably in, in kind of the last few years, really, that um, I wanted to just clarify some of, the, some of the terminology. And again, in the second of these podcasts, we'll talk a little bit about that as well. But, you know, for a long time, we used to just speak about kidney failure and acute kidney failure, chronic kidney failure. Um, but more recently, this term of acute kidney injury has started to be used quite a lot as well. And certainly in ICU, we use it probably daily, to be honest. We're talking about acute kidney injury. And it's become a lot more of a heightened concern and consideration of ours and so on. Um, and I guess I wondered if you could try and explain a little bit about what we mean by acute kidney injury and what relevance or relationship that has to the term failure, if you like. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the, the term acute renal failure, you'll probably read in um, a large number of textbooks that are still out there and widely being used. Um, and the reason that we've wanted to move away from that term is it because it implies that there's no way back from that point. So using the term failure uh, implies that we've reached that end point. Um, and in fact, we do recognise that acute kidney injury um, can happen um, and can reflect a broad spectrum of disease. So we can take um, a young, otherwise healthy patient with normal renal function, um, and they can undergo an insult to their kidney, 
That could be a, a toxin exposure. That could be from um, ureteral obstruction. But if that insult goes away, then it's not that the kidney can't respond to that insult having occurred. And in fact, that patient um, may end up in a number of different situations. Their kidney function, having um, had that insult, may go back to being completely normal. And that patient may then no, suffer no long-term consequences of that process. And it will depend on the severity of the insult or alternatively that patient may as a consequence of that insult go back to the point where their kidney parameters are normal on their blood work but we know that that insult has been sustained and maybe at an earlier time point in the future than would otherwise have occurred that patient will develop more progressive kidney disease or chronic kidney disease as a consequence of having had that initial acute insult. And we're going to talk in the, in the next podcast about the, um, the diagnosis of chronic kidney disease. Yeah. But if we're looking at patients with acute kidney injury, um, <clears throat> I guess the questions are, well, there's a few really, and you sort of touched on this already, but um, what are the kind of causes of that, but also which patients do we sort of worry a lot about them being sort of susceptible or predisposed to that? Um, but also, are there any kind of markers that we can look for to say, yes, you have suffered acute kidney injury? Or is that work that's sort of under investigation at the moment? Um, so there's quite a few questions, and I'll try to remind you what each of <laughs> yeah. those was. But let's start with the last one first, which is basically... How do I know my patient has suffered acute kidney injury? And, and that can be that can be really challenging. I think obviously at the moment the main markers that we use for kidney injury are creatinine and urea. Um, and and of those, the problem that we have is um, that creatinine has um, a relatively low sensitivity for detecting very early changes in renal function. So if we remember that the relationship between GFR and creatinine is exponential, then um, when we have very early changes or decreases in GFR, then in fact the change in creatinine can be relatively low. So we're absolutely trying to look for new markers and there are um, investigations underway looking for new markers of acute kidney injury. Uh, and actually, before you carry on, um, so one of the things I sometimes see the residents sometimes, my residents in inverted commas, you know, a patient's creatinine on the same analyzer will change from 80 to 100 and they'll be like, creatinine's going up. And I'm like, really? Um, and I guess the question is, can we really interpret it within a normal reference interval at that level? So it is rising even though it's within a normal reference interval. Can we have any confidence in that being a significant change or is that stretching it a little bit? Well, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. We have to think about that. If we take an individual patient and we track them serially and we're using exactly the same analyzer, then yes, I think we can have some degree of confidence that if we track over, say, a week's period and every day we're seeing that 20 to 30 um, micromole per litre increase in creatinine concentration, then yes, I'm getting more worried about that. But we do have to think about the analyzer variability um, and also the normal day-to-day -day variability yeah. in creatinine concentrations and the timing of when you're taking those samples. Did that patient eat this morning? In which case, that increase by sort of 10% may, may not be significant. So we need to be thinking carefully about when we're taking those samples and how we're analyzing them. So creatinine might be useful, <clears throat> um, despite its low sensitivity, if we trend it over... 
a reasonable period of time yeah. and with those kind of methodological things yeah. taken care of in terms of analyzing and timing and all of that. Absolutely. But I guess one of the biggest problems is that often when these patients come into us, we don't have those baseline readings sure, for them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, so kind of you, I, I sort of stopped you mid flow really about, <laughs> so let's just park creatinine aside. So what else have we got? Was urea any good for acute kidney injury or was that just rubbish? Well, it has many of the same problems that creatinine has in terms of sensitivity. And there are also a lot of other um, factors that can impact on urea, things like um, whether the patient's eaten recently. So I think overall, um, when we're looking for trends, as we might be in early AKI or acute kidney injury, then I think creatinine is probably where we're going to be looking. And is there anything else that we can look for or not really? Um, well, we should we should certainly be looking at electrolytes. You might want to look at urinalysis. I mean, it, it depends what sort of underlying etiology you're, you're thinking of as having caused your initial AKI. Um, one of the, I guess, one of the reasons that you worry about it in the ICU is patients that have a, a pre-renal azotemia and are we behind on their fluid therapy? And I think it's important to realise that um, patients that have a, a pre-renal azotemia can go on for that, um, uh, for the pre-renal component to be ultimately damaging to the intrinsic kidney tissue. So something that we need to address. Um, and um, can, in, the ter- in the context of AKI, can urinalysis help us at all, or not really? Um, it again depends on, on the etiology. Many of the um, patients that we will um, see with um, sort of fulminant AKI, um, we're going to see isosanuric urine if they're producing any urine at all, um, and obviously anuria being a, a big concern. So monitoring the amount of urine that these patients are producing can be really important. If we're thinking about um, toxins, and obviously with ethylene glycol, we may be looking for um, crystal formation in the urine, and that can be important information telling us about a potential etiology and can you just remind the listeners um, it's something that comes up a lot and in terms of what they look like i often tend to refer people to online resources with lovely pictures Um, but can you just remind the listeners what casts are and whether they have any bearing how they would interpret yeah. those. Yeah, so cast formation um, essentially is um, debris, cellular debris or, or um, proteinaceous debris that forms within the tubules. And we can see them sometimes in the urine. They can be relatively fragile, so often you'll need to look at the urine straight away to see them. Um, and if you're sending samples off in the post, then it may be that they're not detected. Um, but they look like tubular structures, essentially, as you might imagine in your head that the tubules look like. The problem is that when cast formation um, is, is seen in the urine, this is a real indication that we've got a problem because they imply that there it has been damage to the tubules. Um, so, for example, I think um, people certainly used to recommend looking um, for cast formation to guide them about the potential use of certain nephrotoxic drugs, such as gentamicin, for example. The problem is that by the time you're seeing that cast formation actually you've been treating that patient for too long with that drug because that acute kidney injury has already happened so yes definitely if they're there we want to know about them but it's potentially a sign of quite severe damage okay fair enough so um if i see cast in the urine of my patient i can it's very likely that patient has suffered acute kidney injury absolutely what we're hoping to do is to detect that phenomenon before Before. we will find cast in the urine and presumably we won't always find in the urine no anyway. no absolutely um so it's it's a variable phenomenon but but when they're there we need to take note of them okay cool and um so back to one of my other questions which was let's have um i guess 
if you can stretch that far to five common and in inverted commas, but you can go for three. <laughs> Look on your face, it's like five. Um, you know, causes of AKI. Let's just come up with five if we can. Ooh. But you can't have you can't have five different toxins. You have to have <laughs> toxins as just one group. <laughs> that mean of me <laughs> okay so doc, so so i mean toxins would be a big group um um Actually, I'll give infectious you, you toxins into therapeutic drugs and non-therapeutic okay drugs, if you like um <laughs> infectious causes so leptospirosis is definitely something that we need to consider in, in in this country and the reason that we definitely need to be thinking about leptospirosis is because it's one of the potential conditions which can be reversible with appropriate treatment so if we get if we make that diagnosis or we have that index of suspicion and we get patients started on appropriate antibiotic therapy then then that could be um, a cause of AKI, AKI that we could have a positive outcome from um, toxins as we said maybe ethylene glycol or the, the various drugs so we need to be cautious with our non-steroidal anti-inflammatories um, the aminoglycoside antibiotics which obviously we don't use very often but we should always be aware before we use them um, and then we can think about either pre-renal causes of AKI, so um, uh, patients that have become um, hypovolemic for any particular reason can sustain an AKI, um, or you could have a post-renal cause of AKI. So um, we see a large number of cats um, uh, these days that come in with ureteral obstructions, and those kidneys, when they become obstructed as a consequence of the stone lodging within the ureter, those kidneys are undergoing an acute kidney injury as a result of that. So um, th- those would be some canine and feline causes. Yeah. Cool. Um, I should remind the listeners that <clears throat> there is a podcast on ureteric obstruction um, from earlier in the series, so they can listen to that. Um, I was also thinking when you were saying that, that that phenomenon of post-renal obstruction causing AKI is something I always mention when I sort of do a talk on block cats. But to my mind, I can't remember seeing a patient that has remained azotemic after appropriate treatment but of course it takes us back to that conversation that we had earlier that I guess I don't know that some of those then didn't go on to develop chronic kidney disease as a phenomenon yeah. I mean the, the urethra obstructed at that time but most well to my memory every patient I've sent home every block cat I've sent home that I can remember <laughs> there's been a lot of them um has gone home non-azotemic, but there may be ones that that, that doesn't apply to, but I've just never seen them, and I guess there may also be, as I say, the one that did suffer AKI. Yeah, and and I I think hopefully we pick, because those cats present with quite overt clinical signs, um, we tend to see them relatively quickly. Mm. Um, And I think, obviously, the difference then between um, a cat um, with a unilateral ureteral Mm. obstruction is that potentially the other kidney is functioning and we don't see those cats as rapidly. Um, Yeah. And um, something else, which is, actually, there was was lots of tangents, really. Um, The leptospirosis thing, I think we need to do a podcast on that at some point, because I have questions about that disease and the the relative um, incidence of the different serovars and in this country, how many are jaundiced and how many have kidney problems and how many have both and all that kind of stuff. I think we need to do that some other time, but let's not go on a tangent now. Um, The other thing was when you were saying about looking at the urine quite quickly in the context of casts, it sort Mm. of reminded me to ask you about this whole you know, looking at urine for kind of crystal urea phenomenon as well and about saying that we need to look at a sample as fresh as possible Mm -hmm. and do we have any kind of guidelines or guidance for the listeners about, aside from look at urine as quickly as you can, you know, so if you're putting it in the post, 
is that suboptimal for people then evaluating that urine? I mean, I, I, I think that they will, it's not that the assessment that they do will be suboptimal. I think it's um, just that there may be some crystals that um, dissolve and there may also be crystals that form during refrigeration. So I think if you can look at a urine sample in-house, it's quick, it's relatively easy to do. Um, even if ultimately you send it out for confirmation of your findings, then um, I think it's good to make that assessment in-house. In, in terms of what you interpret from, from the crystals, it very much depends on the underlying disease process that you're expecting so with with chronic kidney disease we may not make any inference of the presence of um, a few struvite or calcium oxalate crystals mm. at all but obviously if we were thinking more specifically about cats with urethral obstruction or ureteral obstruction then we might be wanting to make some inferences the majority of stones blocking ureters are, are going to be calcium oxalates so interprets in the context of the patient yeah absolutely yeah definitely okay excellent um I think so. We, we've kind of touched on. I think one of the big things that that you said, which I think is worth reiterating, because it's something that you know I've always said to clients, um, is this question of if you're presented with a patient that you go on to diagnose chronic kidney disease, um, you know, this inability to sort of specifically pinpoint a time when it started or a particular trigger for that. Um, and I guess that's just how it is, is it? And there's not much that we can do about that. No, not not at not at the moment. Uh, I mean, I think you know when when we get the opportunity to, to sit down and review entire patients' histories, and we're seeing them perhaps um, older patients that are coming in with this non-specific tubular interstitial nephritis. Then there may be insults in the past that we think, hmm, well, you know, maybe that will have contributed somewhere along the line. Um, but it's the same in terms of predicting um, how progressive an individual patient's kidney disease is going to be. Ultimately, at the moment, um, it's really only by monitoring the, those patients that we know how fast things are likely to change. Because yeah. um, um, I guess we get the ones that come in with sort of congenital anomalies that we can say yeah. are fair enough. But then beyond that, the, the other thing I was thinking when you were talking about you know, hypovolemia, we, um, and again, it's something I try and go on about when I do CPD and talk to the students and stuff, is because we definitely see patients that, for example, had a traumatic episode and that they were hypovolemic, hypoperfused at the time of presentation. And the people that manage those patients, they're often cats because they tend to get hit by cars in, in this country anyway a lot, sadly. Um, and the right thought was they need analgesia. The wrong thought from our point of view was let's give a non-steroidal. Now, some of those cases come into us with evidence of AKI and others don't. And I often wonder whether those, that group that doesn't, whether that sort of scenario could be a trigger. But, of course, I can't prove that because we don't have that data to say, well, apart from the small number that we do see every year here that come in with AKI post non-steroidal use when they were hypotensive, hypoperfused, that there may well be others that go on to suffer those consequences and we can't prove, which again is a bit frustrating, but I think it's definitely one scenario that we see. Um, Because it's hard, unless people actually see the evidence of the adverse effect, it's sort of hard to convince sometimes to say, please don't do that. Yeah, definitely. Um, And I think it's just a word of caution, isn't it, really, that, you know, before you use that drug, we just need to think, you know, has this patient been adequately volume resuscitated? Um, Am I comfortable to administer it? And sometimes they do need that analgesia, and it's not that we should withhold it, but we need to be happy that we're comfortable administering it. Absolutely, and I guess also um, it's kind of difficult to say, well, when is it okay? Absolutely. Um, So 
when the azotemic is resolved, if they were azotemic, but if they weren't azotemic, and even if it does. I know, I know um, there's one person who shall remain unnamed, but she's very famous in, in ECC circles in, in, in the world, really. She's one of the sort of founding people of, of our specialism. And, um, you know, she was very adamant about just not going near a non-steroidal for maybe like a week or something. And I think most people aren't at that place, but in terms of providing guidance to people about when they consider yeah. using it, it's very difficult, isn't it? We yeah. And there's many other ways in which we can provide suitable analgesia. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah, cool. All right, excellent. Um, so I think what we're going to do is, I think we've covered everything I wanted to sort of talk about um, today in this first episode. And um, what we'll do is we'll come back and record part two when we can focus on the kind of more clinical aspects of chronic kidney disease, talk about how to approach the patients and so on. Um, so I hope that's all right and uh, I'm not troubling you too much to come back again in the future. Um, to the listeners, as always, do feel free to get in touch and provide feedback in the usual way. So you can email me directly at eschasani at rvc.ac.uk. You can use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page um, where there is an album that actually contains photos but also information about and links to the podcasts. And if you're a Twitter user, then you can tweet us at Royal Vet College and use the hashtag SAClinPod. Um, the last thing I wanted to say is that if you are enjoying listening to this podcast series and you have access to iTunes, then it would be great if you could take a minute to rate the podcast and uh, maybe write a, a review comment as well. But if you don't have the time to write the comment, then at least if you could rate the podcast, that would be awesome. So until next time, then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.